Hello and welcome to another episode of Green Minds. This week I had the opportunity to chat to Tom Rayner, founder and CEO of Cillian, a communications and strategy consultancy helping clients navigate the world of ESG, whether that's through an in-depth understanding of ESG regulation and reporting or through knowledge of how to effectively communicate true sustainability. I was really excited to chat to Tom and navigate in particular the ESG communication space. I think often ESG communication brings to mind a plethora of greenwashing scandals that seem a never-ending fixture of our news cycles, whether that's McDonald's touting their first zero carbon restaurant or Boohoo being listed in ESG-focused funds whilst their supplier factories are exploiting workers. What I learned was that the reality is far more complex, with Tom highlighting the idea that greenwashing is more a sign of the complexity of communicating sustainability and understanding supply chains, rather than the explicit intent to deceive. One of the biggest takeaways for me was understanding that bringing about greater sustainability within corporations and the market as a whole necessarily requires that we understand the we understand that communicating sustainability faithfully can turn what is really a cost of operating into a strategic value lever for the company and the planet so yeah with that Let's dive into the podcast. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the podcast. And I guess I wanted to start at the beginning of your sustainability journey and really understand how someone who studies archaeology and anthropology uh, came to found uh, strategy and communications consulting. So, yeah, how did Cilion start and wh- why did it start? Hi, Sharon, and thanks for having me on. That takes me back quite a long way to, yes, at least nominally studying archaeology and anthropology. And I suppose that does play through into where I ended up, but I've had a bit of a mixed career. So the potted, not too self-indulgent version, hopefully, um, is that I started out in, in communications. So I was sort of interested in the power of the media on people from quite a young age, and I suppose that was all the more amplified whilst I was starting my career in the early 2000s. And, and I wanted to work in in the sort of media and communications, but everyone leaving university was supposed to go and work in the city because it was the early 2000s. And so I ended up in, a, in an industry that's called financial PR, which is sort of communicating companies' performance, activity, strategy uh, to the city and to investors. It doesn't actually involve the media that much, but I thought it was going to be this lovely confluence of um, media and finance. And it was interesting. I learned a lot about you have a good overview of the city and, and companies and how they work, and you're usually operating at, at board level or CEO level, which is also an interesting um, way of learning about corporate life. But I got quite frustrated, I guess, because it was an industry where it felt as though I just needed to be older in order to progress faster. I simply didn't have enough grey hairs. Um, so rather than hanging around for a decade, I I ran off and tried to, to be a tech billionaire, Um I hasten to add that I wasn't, um, but tried to do some startups in, in online dating. This was pre-Tinder and all these things, but made lots of mistakes, wasted a lot of time and mine and other people's money, um, but all good learning experiences. And then sort of came back to communications and was still interested in that fundamentally. And so began began working for sort of good 
good projects, good sectors, good causes, so in renewables and clean tech principally. Uh, I didn't want to work and I didn't like a lot of the culture of, of communications that I'd experienced beforehand, which was one of finding spin to be sort of clever and cool, which is something I never quite got my head around. Um, I think communications, I thought and still think communications can be an enormous social good if used um, in the right way, but but I didn't like working for big companies explaining their woes and mistakes to make them um, suffer less. And so committed myself that if I was going to do that for some companies, it would at least be for companies doing good things for the world. And so I did a lot of work in uh, clean tech and, and renewables. Then I, I suppose how did that branch into ESG and a sort of ESG consultancy? I think that we had begun to get more and more in, inquiries about whether or not we could help with ESG work. And this is probably looking at sort of 2018, 2019, um, with people confusing what we did for for sustainability um, because the two were, were sort of meshed then the sustainability often fell to heads of communications on the corporate side because there wasn't anyone specialized at any particular company to do it and either the person doing communications or the person doing hr would often take over the role um and so i interacted quite a lot with with the sort of emerging and fast-growing consultancies that were around at that time and thought that what they were doing was impressive and that they came from a culturally it felt like the incumbent consultancies came from quite an academic and, and green background and that's perfectly appropriate there's nothing wrong with that at all um that's their upbringing and you could feel that in in their dna and i thought that what was happening around 2019 2020 with um, emergent demands from investors and a huge amount of reputational risk from uh, xr and, and the wider populace was that ceos of big companies this was sort of fast fast rising up their list of things to worry about. And so if you could combine proper technical uh, sustainability and ESG expertise with an understanding of how boardrooms worked and how executive careers were shaped, um, built and occasionally destroyed, then you could approach you could approach the question of, of corporate ESG in the context in which CEOs and, and, and CFOs and boardrooms understand. And my, I guess, general approach to affecting change is if you can if you can get the person at the top to want to make the change, then it's much easier to bring about the things that you, the changes that you want. So, so there's no need to go and uh, and make your case on the basis of what a company ought to do. I think there were enough levers in terms of yeah, what, what customers wanted, what the general public wanted, and what investors wanted, to to make this case for sustainability coherently to a CEO, particularly of publicly listed companies. And so the, yeah, they, those sort of that's how. I came to kind of move into this place, combining communications and, and technical sustainability advice. And we hired our first person in January of 2020. Hard to remember which years are which now. Um, and then we had lockdown, which was interesting. So we had to change all of our plans, but uh, it's gone pretty well so far. Um, I think people are understanding the slightly differentiated um, model that we have. And uh, we're, we're still small. We're 14 about 14 full-time and about another um, five or six additional consultants at the moment. But yes, that's how I ended up here. That's how Cillian ended up where it is. And I hope that was coherent. <laughs> yeah, very much so. And super interesting, a great follow-on to my next question, which is because I see that Cillian, and as you've kind of highlighted already, has this two-pronged focus, one of which being um, communication. And it's really interesting for me because Within the ESG space, I haven't really seen consulting companies focus on the communication stream and kind of promote that side. And so I was wondering, 
how do you feel that the proper communication of businesses and their like ESG and sustainability strategy can elicit both value for the planet and also value for those companies and those investors. So I think that dichotomy is sometimes very hard for the public to wrap their heads around. Sure. Uh, so, so I think that I think I think it's a strange um, dual offering to pitch, uh, and I think there are. There's been a lot of communications companies that have um, that are kind of pitching the same thing and, and have tried to turn their hand to some of the lighter weight elements of sustainability strategy um, and you know writing reports and that sort of thing and and so we kind of we're quite careful not to get bundled up into a communications company that, that has tried to turn its hand to sustainability though that is my background it's emphatically not that of of the team um, and. Um, and, and so I think there's lots of lots of firms will have a uh, 100 people and two of them will be MSCs and the rest will be um, comms people and that's not what we are we're overweight um, MSCs at the moment. So uh, and I think it's it's important to be able to provide proper technical underpinning of what you're communicating. Now, now why is communication important? And if we if we look first from a, from a corporate lens and take imagine a CFO's perspective of, of sort of where a company is at and how it's operating. Um, so there's we view sustainable activities and operating sustainably as necessarily more expensive than the standard model of operation for any company. There are certainly lots of cases where operating sustainably can save a company um, money and make it more profitable. But we kind of we kind of plonk those in a bucket of business as usual because companies are in the business every day, driven by commercial goals of of increasing their profitability. So. We kind of look at sustainability and say these are all things that you as a company are going to elect to do that are going to make you less profitable, at least in the short term. And in return for that for that lower profitability, um, you're going to have higher positive externalities accruing to stakeholders outside of the company. And that's that's not a bug. That's a feature. That's the idea of sustainability in ESG. Companies elect to operate a bit more responsibly and other people have a nicer life on the planet is a bit better. So the question of how communication fits in is, is, and really what's happened over the last three years, is by communicating what you're doing uh, faithfully, transparently, accurately, but also well to your various different audiences, you can turn what what was from a CFO's perspective um, a cost, a sort of a cost that we all need to bear as a society and as companies, but certainly a cost and turn that into a, into a piece of strategic capital. So if you look at the various audiences that a company might think about in its general operations, you've got internal audiences, you've got the capital markets and investors, um, you've got the company's customers, um, and you've got the general public. And by communicating what you're doing well um, in sustainability terms, um, you can turn the additional cost of operating responsibly, which is it is the right thing to do anyway, um, into into um, valuable pieces of strategic advantage. So for internal audiences, you've got well-publicized studies into how um, the salary costs and ease of hiring and reduction of churn um, is, a, is a big advantage uh, to sustainable companies. Um, the, the cost of capital uh, in the for investors is um, is measurably different now. Certainly, bad performers are, are paying a lot more for their money than less bad performers, and by implication, good performers are paying a bit less. 
there's premium pricing for for green offerings and products in almost every sector, be that B2B or B2C. And in terms of the general public, you're fundamentally de-risking yourself from reputational scandal and building up a store of of reputational capital, which gives you a greater license to operate um, elsewhere in the world. So, so the way we try and look at it from a corporate perspective is um, is you have to operate sustainably because it's the right thing to do. But what we can do by communicating it effectively is turn what the CFO might view as a cost into a piece of reputational um, and other strategic advantage. So that's from the corporate perspective. And I can um, go on further about investors if, if helpful. Yeah, sure. I think a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are kind of deciding whether they want to go the corporate route or um, work within the asset management banking space. So that would definitely be insightful. I would, the cheeky answer would be depends how much money they want to earn in the short <laughs> term. So in terms of what what investors are are looking for and where this has all come from, so this this sort of dropping briefly back into corporates again, where this has all come from, the huge upsurge in, in interest in ESG over the last two and a half years hasn't really been from regulation. It's been through a combination of in, investor pressure or investors um, forewarning about the pressure they're about to bring on companies and on uh, and from reputational risk, um, CEOs feeling reputational risk um, from the general public and from XR and others. So if we look at the investor piece, where has this all suddenly arisen from for investment managers and, um, and and that's come from asset owners. So pension funds and other people who have a, a huge amounts of capital to deploy have been asking for significant improvements to um, investment managers' stewardship uh, policies and strategies in order to secure their investment mandates. So, and, and this makes sense for asset owners. If, you're, if your liabilities are 50 years or, what, or whatever they are as a pension fund, you are particularly interested uh, in outcomes for the planet in a way in which other companies whose incentives are not so temporally aligned might not be. So this is where the pressures chiefly come from. So if you look at investment managers now, those who deploy capital from asset owners and invested into corporates, um, so sort of the middle piece in that in that three, investment managers are looking at this from, from three perspectives, um, and they will vary from investment house to investment house. So the, the first is some level of moral obligation. People wanted to do the right thing and thinking this is the, the right way of operating. A significant marketing requirement. Again, that's the that's the asset owner piece. So if I'm trying to convince a pension fund to give me 200 million to invest on their behalf, um, I need to have a very good story on, on stewardship and ESG and what I'm doing to be a responsible investment manager. Otherwise, I won't get a meeting in the first place and I certainly won't secure the mandate. And that's the direction of travel for um, for. Uh, asset owners and, and and investment managers. And then thirdly, investors are, are kind of using ESG and this broad set of new disclosures that are emerging and have been emerging over the last five years to help uncover otherwise hidden pots of risk and opportunity when, when making their investment decisions. So what investors, I suppose, have done since the beginning of time is, is try and seek an informational advantage over over other investors to to gain clues as to where they should invest their capital and which companies or sectors are going to do well or poorly. Um, and so ESG is a lens and a data set that allows them to identify risk and opportunity. Obviously, all of your listeners will be well familiar with this, but in particular, transitional risks um, are well within the investment horizon of, of most um, investment managers, and they're particularly interested in regulation and consumer trends and, and business models be absurdly simple if you use plastic bags and need plastic bags for your business they really want to know what your plan is for 
not having plastic bags in the future? Are you, do you have a functional business model um, for the jurisdictions in which you operate in 2025? If you don't, what's your plan for changing? Uh, if you haven't got one, do I as an investor want to divest? Um, so that, that's the kind of the three ways we look at it. Doing good, marketing for asset owners, and a lens to identify risk and opportunity. That's sort of how we think about what investors want at the moment. That's super interesting. And to kind of bring it back to greenwashing and this perhaps something that you've kind of alluded to as we've spoken a bit, this misalignment between communicating that you're doing good and actually doing good. And I feel like, so I follow a lot of people on Twitter and LinkedIn within the ESG space. And I think that 2020, 2021 was really characterized by this increased outcry over greenwashing. Um, whether that's ESG funds that are concealing non-ESG companies or, you know, the likes of McDonald's saying that they have a zero carbon restaurant um, when they don't perhaps have a zero carbon uh, supply chain. I was wondering, because I see greenwashing as a um, communication issue um, predominantly. I think that companies are perhaps not understanding where the line is and, and how, how they need to communicate to their consumers. I was wondering, how do you think that we can solve greenwashing from a communication angle and also a, a strategy angle? Yeah, it's, it's not a straightforward challenge. And I, and I, I think... I think the greenwashing as a term is serving an excellent purpose at the moment. The communications, I mean, the central communications preoccupation with lots of our clients when they are thinking about wanting to, to communicate what they are doing in sustainability is overridingly fear of being accused of greenwashing. So I would say that, I would say that first and foremost, sort of sticking up for, for corporates a, a little bit is that um, they would like to say what they're doing. They're nervous. They're not doing enough. They're not sure what others are doing. Um, and they, really, really don't want to be accused of greenwashing. And, and I think there's hesitance sometimes on the part of, of less sophisticated corporates to communicate really quite good initiatives they're doing because, because they are worried about greenwashing. So it's, it, it's, a, it's a big, big factor in, in their decisions. I think that there's some, there's some hard tools um, and legislation that's coming in. You're beginning to see advertising standards look at um, consumer advertising. And certainly in the investor space, you've seen some useful legislation come in, principally EU taxonomy and SFDR. And we await the versions that the uh, UK regulators are going to onshore, which we understand are going to be very, very similar in nature to those um, pieces of European le- legislation. So on, on, the, on the investor side, there have been some wins and some failures. Um, so I think we still have high hopes for the EU taxonomy. I can go into a bit more detail about the um, about the mechanisms of it and why I think it's a good idea. Um, but I don't want to get too techy. Um, but the, the general idea there is to is to force investors to disclose the percentage of their funds of each fund that is invested in sectors and companies that are, that are pursuing green goals. This seems like a good idea to me. Um, it's a it's a better idea than, than blacklists and whitelists because it means that it means that investors are still able to allocate capital to the most profitable companies. They're still you know they could theoretically hold a coal fired power plant um, in their in their portfolio as long as it was balanced out with a huge amount of renewables the other the other way. So I think that that is a, a sensible way to to sort of transition. It implies a much higher cost of capital for the companies that are that are polluting and a much, much lower cost of capital for um, 
for green companies. The theory at least works for me. I, I can see some of the ways it's being implemented. Um, there are questions about. So, so I think that, that there's a role for legislation to play. Um, I think SFDR has been less successful in the way it's been in the way it's been implemented, um, which was uh, an attempt to ask asset managers to categorise their funds into either art, Article Six, Eight, or Nine to sort of paraphrase that would, would be um, not very green, a bit green, and dark green. But again, the success of that has been limited by the way it's been used, and um, there's quite a lot of leeway was allowed in the rules for for investment funds that could be classified as Article Eight, um, and and you're seeing already some pretty wild stories, and I think you'll see a lot more about um, funds that were nominally classified under the EU regulation as Article Eight funds being uh, containing some companies you really wouldn't expect to be there. Um, so that's that's one problem, and that's chiefly because the, the sort of SFDR framework was dreamed up as a um, as a disclosure framework, but it's come to be used as a uh, and interpreted as a badge. So the idea was, if you're this sort of investment fund, you should disclose uh, these sorts of pieces of information about the companies in which you invest, and then asset owners will make their own minds up about about how green your fund is. In reality. Companies have, have used the disclosure framework they've chosen, i.e. Article 8, as a badge and said, we're an Article 8 fund. You don't have to look beneath at our disclosures. Um, and asset owners probably haven't had time to understand or dig into um, those individual disclosures. And so have often said, we're happy investing in Article 8 or above qualities of, of disclosure. So that's sort of the hard legislation piece. And obviously in, in individual sectors from automotive to, to consumer goods, you're seeing legislation coming again a little bit slower and, and, and further into the distance, um, but coming in coming in there as well. Um, I, I think the, the big thing to highlight is the importance of not of these hard pieces, these sort of hard tools, but soft tools are, um, around reputation. So as a society, we've got to keep vociferously calling out greenwash because that is what keeps these companies honest and i think that it, it's it's been the risk of reputational damage chiefly i think that has that has caused this massive upswing in in, uh, in corporate uh, interest in sustainability and esg you know, the science hasn't changed this is this is i i think chiefly a response to potential reputational risk and the needs of investors so so i think we've got to keep keep our guard up and keep criticizing keep criticising companies for any aspects of greenwash. And I think crucially, and what you're seeing accelerating in the last couple of months, is starting to really criticise communications firms um, that are enabling and encouraging and professionalising um, sort of greenwashy communications on behalf of their clients. And I think that's a, an area that's coming into coming into focus again in the last couple of weeks. There were a few scandals last year, of course. Um, and I think I think we want to see keeping the communications firms honest by, by, by threatening their reputations, I think is a good way of making sure that that greenwashing is um, is deliberate greenwashing is kept out. There are still going to be mistakes, um, and there are still going to be edge cases where um, stakeholders disagree about the, the sort of true sustainability of a, of a of a campaign or a strategy. But we have to keep calling it out. I think we have to find a way to encourage companies that are trying trying to change as well. It's one of the one of the things we do at Cillian, and I'm often asked by by uh, prospective clients or or, or candidates to, to come and work here. What are what our sort of lines are on who we will work for? I think you're, you're right to kind of flag it. We do both ESG strategy and communication, so um, we have to have sort of careful lines about who we will and won't work for. And and I think that um, I would be willing to work with 
any company as long as they were really meaningfully trying to change. Um, so I think I think our perspective is we are we are happy to work with even big carbon emitters if if they are meaningfully trying to change their business model um, and not just trying to change their reputation. Um, and we've sort of turned down a lot of work uh, for people that fell into the latter pot. Yeah, I really appreciate that. One of the podcast episodes um, that Jamie and I recorded, we were talking to Cornelia, who is head of ESG at a private equity firm. And we were also talking about this idea of greenwashing and how she was conducting due diligence on her firms. And she said the reality is companies don't want to create comm strategy that is greenwashed. That's never their intention. They want to do good and they want to do good by their clients and their customers and um, the planet in general. It's just that sometimes it is really difficult, for instance, to especially if you have such a massive supply chain to understand where your ESG faults are, which I guess is where you guys and consultancy firms come in in general is just picking that out. Yeah, I think um I think that's right. I think there's, I think there's an, there's a huge amount for us as a society and, and, and as a sort of, as a corporate in, in the brightest sense sector to get our hands around, um, in terms of diligence, supply chain reporting, and everything else. And we're just, in, you know, we're in the infancy of this. That there's a, a lot of corporates decry the sort of burden of this disclosure and and um, data management and collection and. Um, and, and it is a big, it, it does feel like a big load on, uh, sort of, on particularly smaller corporates. But if you look at, um, financial reporting, the same, the same guys will have a hundred people working in their finance department. Um, and they're using accountancy principles that have been around for hundreds of years. So it's no great surprise they're finding it a lot easier, um, to report on their financial performance than they are on their sustainability performance where they have half a person working on it um, and no frameworks, sort of no ubiquitous frameworks set in place for everyone to use. So um, I, I, I sympathise. Um, it's a difficult, I think we have to accept we're at the start of the, we're, we're at the start of um, a journey. That said, we have got to go very fast. Um, so, so I think calling out elements of greenwash, but as best we can, trusting that, that, most corporates aren't trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes here. They're trying to act better to the extent that they know how, and, and that varies a lot from, from company to company. But they are getting more sophisticated very quickly. We really haven't seen such a leap ahead as as we have in the last 18 months. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned um, the EU taxonomy and just generally ESG frameworks. So I'm obviously doing a master's in sustainable finance and previous to this I was in ESG consulting. So I have a slight understanding of the ESG framework space, but even for me, it's quite difficult to navigate those frameworks in depth, especially the EU taxonomy. Um, And I was wondering, is that one of the biggest barriers for your clients? And if not, what is in trying to become more sustainable? Uh, I think it's getting a lot easier. I think if you if you look at the, the history of frameworks, it's an interesting one in which sometime in the mid 2010s or early 2010s, a lot of very smart people wanted to solve this question, and I think correctly saw that the way that you create meaningful change across industry um, is by starting to measure and disclose things. And then people uh, that, that has to be the baseline for being able to, to make change. 
Uh, and so how do you arrange frameworks for thinking about and then disclosing data such that all stakeholders can at least understand what is going on? And I think lots of people ran away into different groups and started coming up with with very good ideas for frameworks. We've had this huge proliferation phase um, over the sort of late 2010s of of frameworks, um, different ways of thinking about sustainability and measuring sustainability and communicating sustainability um, that were that bumped into each other, overlapped, and in many places out and out were competing with each other to become the dominant framework. And we do need a dominant framework. It means that it means that companies and and people at companies can learn one system and understand it and then communicate it. And it means that the users of that information, be they investors or other stakeholders, um, can can learn one system and meaningfully interrogate the data. So it's been a long time coming. Um, uh, and obviously the sort of the ISSB is the, is the great hope. Um, and I think they, I think they're certainly best placed to solve and unite this framework problem. Um, there's a lot of very good brains going there. Um, and, and in the, already at the organizations that are, that are becoming the ISSB. Um, so my hope certainly, I think, I think they will make a, make a great success of it. Uh, I think the, the long-term direction is for this to be, is for sustainability um, reporting and data and frameworks to, to sort of move towards being an, an audit position handled by auditors and part of, um, and part of auditing training the world over. So I think once, once we get it to that stage, this will be much more, it'll be, a, it'll be, part of the course in the future. Um, I think we, we need to get it to that stage, and I think the ISSB are the, are the best people to, to take it from where we are now in terms of competing frameworks to um, one ring to rule them, et cetera, et cetera. So kind of jumping on, on this looking to the future, what kinds of trends do you predict for 2022 within this ESG space? Mm. 2022. So I think that... What do I think? I think that the, I think we'll see ESG as a topic and potentially sustainability as a topic coming off the boil very slightly, which I think had to happen at some point over the next 10 years. You wouldn't be able to keep going at this, at this fever pitch for a decade. Sort of humans and society just don't have enough attention um, to be able to focus on one issue, no matter how pressing for that long. So I think, uh, post COP, I think, um, things might come come down a couple of decibels in terms of the focus on this i definitely don't think it's going to go away i don't think there's any um, balloons bursting but but i think it might come off the boil a bit i think also um certainly in in western europe as you're seeing colossal spikes to energy prices come through in in the spring i think the general public might conflate um those very palpable price increases that they feel through their energy bills with sustainability more generally which would be a slightly unfair but completely understandable conclusion to come to and we'll have to see if that plays through to um, public support for sustainability um, sustainability issues if it does come off then then you know, for the last two years we've had the sort of perfect storm of the electorate and investors and companies and politicians all pushing forward for this if the electorate starts to be 50 50 on on the cost of sustainability then we'll probably see um, politicians as they want to cool a little bit as well so i hasten to add i don't think it's going to be um any any big change but i think um, it might come off the boil very slightly um if and when energy prices uh are reacted too badly that's one thing um i'll start with bad ones first so i think that will be a bad thing i think we might see towards the end of the year at least a debate around what we do about private companies um 
we've talked a lot about all the pressure that's being brought on corporates. That only really works in a, in a public listed setting um, where you have firstly the regulations required to be a listed company uh, on a sensible stock exchange. And secondly, the visibility of being a public company. Um, I think I think it's much harder to apply pressure to big private companies, much, much harder. Um, and I don't think we have a brilliant answer yet um, as a society as to how we stop all these um, deeply emitting sectors going to the private, um, going to private ownership and continuing to be very profitable um, in that situation. Um, so I think that will become a, a, an important point of debate. Um, what else? I think I think we might see. I think there's a lot of companies that are talking a good game on sustainability in um, in Western Europe, for instance, um, whilst still selling their sort of older, less sustainable um, products elsewhere in the world. I think that might become an area of um, greenwash focus. So that's three bad things, three good things. The smiles on our faces. I think the ISSB will work. I think that'll start to bite. Um, and we can last start to rally around um, a uh, one set of disclosures, which I think will be enormously beneficial for building out a, a more sophisticated ecosystem in, in sustainability communication. I think we're seeing a huge amount more competence on the on the client side and a huge, a huge, a huge number of much more highly trained individuals from Imperial and other great universities um, coming through. And, and enabling companies to start becoming more more competent. I think one of the chief things that is very visible from our perspective is just the dearth of talent and trained people, specifically at sort of management level. There just aren't that many good people working in sustainability who are over the age of 35, he says as a 36-year-old, because because there wasn't the it wasn't an obvious thing to, to go and begin your career in when I was setting out. I think that's emphatically not the case now. And so I think you're seeing much more talented people enter the sector, which is which is hugely beneficial. Um, and I think you're starting to see corporates really begin to turn plans into actions and not just not just the sort of high profile FTSE 100s, but um, further down the, the listed space, people really sort of had they've announced all their plans and strategies last year and now deciding okay how do we begin to how do we begin to turn this into action ceos and boardrooms um being aware that they need to, to push through action off the back of these um, impressive strategies so um some bad mostly good direction of travel definitely strong um and and excited for all the brains entering the space if there's one thing that really gives me confidence that it that this is headed in the right direction is the sheer amount of talent that is coming into the sector. That's really nice. Thank you. That's, yeah, there's a very nice, succinct, um, balanced view of what our 2022 might look like. So it's kind of speaking of talented sustainability individuals, I think the beauty and one of the reasons why I love doing this podcast is that I get to speak to leaders within the sustainability space. And I like to end the podcast kind of asking for advice. So, yeah, this podcast goes out to loads of master's students, particularly at Imperial, but also beyond. Um, And I was wondering, do you have any words of wisdom for us? And if you were in our position right now, what would you do? I would say take the broadest possible view of of the opportunities available. I know um, investment management firms are, are, for example, not to criticise them, they do do great work, are, are, are Paying a lot of money for, for um, at the moment, 
I think that the, the roles therein are sometimes more compliancy than people expect. And I think there there are lots of interesting ways to have an impactful uh, and satisfying career within sustainability, not just at small consultancies. Um, but there are lots of ways and, and really take the take the widest possible view of where you're starting. Um, that's general career advice, not just for people in sustainability. Working hard and being talented, there's sort of very successful and well remunerated careers at the top of all of the ladders. So don't plump for the one that, that pays the most now. Um, I would say, and then secondly, I would say, well, yeah, when thinking about when thinking about how we can affect change as a, as a society, finding ways to impact people's incentives rather than imploring them to make changes seems to me the most effective way of, of creating mass change. So if you can, I think what, what's been great about the last, the last two years is that enough levers have emerged on the incentives of management teams from, from big corporates that they are sort of automatically of their own accord going to go and be more sustainable because if they don't, their careers suffer, suffer reputational damage their employees cost more, their investors give them more hassle, um, and their customers won't pay them as much money. So if you can put the incentives in place to make change, it happens automatically. Sort of market forces take over and push it all in the right direction. So to the extent that we all can, we should focus on creating those incentives rather than imploring people to, to be better. Um, from but Both are noble goals, but from a pragmatic standpoint, I think um, arranging incentives is the best way to do it. That's really interesting. Thank you. And super final question. Do you have a book recommendation for us? My my go-to book recommendation is something, I mean, in a vaguely business context, is um, a small book called The Mum Test. Um, and it is, can I explain it succinctly? It's very short, which is nice. I think most um, non-fiction ideas-y books tend to fall into a trap of having 50 pages of a good idea, 50 pages of good examples, and then 300 more pages of unnecessary examples and usually a sort of final overreaching attempt to um, link one or two small good ideas into an overarching theory of the world. This is not that book. It's very short and it basically explains an interesting thing from an anthropologist's perspective to bring this all back round, um, which is which is that when I don't know if any of your audience, I'm sure lots of them will be will be creating businesses and and um, new ideas and new products and new services and, and ways of solving problems, both commercially and, and not for profit. Um, the mum test describes a situation in which you come up with a good idea and go and ask people if they think it's a good idea. And they all tell you, yes, it's a good idea. Um, the name is is taken from from the, the sort of proto example of this dynamic where you go to your mum and say I've got this great idea for a business mum what do you think and, and inevitably she says that's fantastic darling it's going to be a great success um, and, and the lesson of the book is that all people are lying to you to some extent not deliberately just because it's how humans work we like being nice to people we like being encouraging to people so the mum test teaches you to ask the right questions to find out uh, if your idea, your product, your offering is really a good one or people are just saying that's a lovely idea because it's the easiest way to get you out of the room slash not hurt your feelings. So I think it's a really cool, very short book. It's mum, spelt the US way, M-O-M, for the record. Thank you. Thank you. That's a great book. I will definitely add that to my lengthy (laughs) reading list. Yeah, you must have loads. Yeah. Yeah, it's a question that we ask everyone. So, so yeah, at the end, at the end of this season, we will be producing a Green Minds reading list, kind of like Obama. Very nice. If uh, I hope it has the same success.
Yeah, thank you. Um, but thank you so much, Tom. Um, yeah, it's been great to deep dive into the world of communication, ESG strategy and how we can yeah, just create better businesses and elicit greater change. Not at all. Um, thank you very much for having me on and um, it was a pleasure.